This is On the Block with Stricken Bach. Nebraska Basketball Hall of Famer and nine-year NBA vet, Eric Strickland. Strickland for three! And you're going to go out of here as the Big 8 tournament champion. 93-7 the ticket veteran and Bill Callahan fan club president, Jake Bakovic. I love Billy. Coming at you live from the Koppel Chevrolet GMC studios in the heart of Lincoln, America. On air and online at theticketfm.com. Sponsored by the Mercado by Certified Piedmontese. This is On the Block with Stricken Bob. Hold up. Hey, welcome back on the block with East Strick and my illustrious partner, Jake Bakovin, here on 93.7 The Ticket, theticketfm.com. We welcome you to the second hour of our show. As I always state, you can always find us. If you're a new listener here, you can find us here every day from 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can also text in on any questions, any thoughts, any concerns, any problems, any issues. We are not a counseling service, but we are a counseling service to sports where we love to hear your thoughts and your con- your, your concerns, your wishes, or your uh, things that are popping on your mind on the Sutter Hammond text line is always open to you at 402-464-5685 as well as the Honda Lincoln hotline. First of all, Jake Bachman, I want to do a shout out, man. Listen, Basketball Hall of Famer Bob Lanier, man, the great center out of the Detroit Pistons and the Milwaukee Bucks who used to bump and grind with uh, the the great Lou Alcindor, a.k.a. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He was a phenomenal player on the inside, very reminiscent of like Moses Malone. He was a banger in the 70s. He was one of the top players in the 70s. He died on Tuesday at the age of 73. Big shout out. One of my colleagues, one of my fraternity brothers of the NBA, mm-hmm. Bob Lanier. He had a illustrious career. And, um, you know, he played 14 seasons with the Detroit Pistons as well as the Milwaukee Bucks, averaging 20 points a game, 10 rebounds, a double-double for his career. And he is third on the Pistons scoring list in both points and rebound. Uh, rebounding, and he was drafted number one overall in the 1970 draft, and uh, as well as leading St. Bonaventure to the Final Four. And so uh, I just wanted to give a shout out, man. Um, just a tremendous person, you know, Bob Lanier was, and uh, unfortunately, he has passed on and, and, and left us. But that's it. Let's move on. I want to talk a little bit as well. Uh, any thoughts, Bach? Um, anything you'd like to share, you know, about that? Well, yeah, obviously I'm a little bit too young to have watched too much of Bob Lanier uh, growing up or anything like that. But uh, I always appreciate uh, anybody that's, you know, <laughs> number one pick and all that stuff. I had a great career. Um, I do wonder this, you know, just kind of in, in that same area. Um I don't know if you heard recently J.J. Redick um, basically going up against the idea that a lot of those uh, guys in that era, you know, makes jokes about, you know, you know having side jobs or <laughs> the NBA basically being their side job. Do you think that a lot of those guys could, could translate areas? Obviously, a guy like Bob Lanier could, but, um, you know, a lot of those guys could, could translate areas because J.J. Redick kind of has the idea that I, I think that the, the skill that it takes, the level of skill to t- play in the NBA today would translate eras to any time, but doesn't think that maybe you know some of the guys back in the day would translate to the modern times 
And see, I, I think that's a that's a misnomer um, in, in in some ways. I, I I think only because the game was just so much simplified. You didn't like today. It takes guys fifty dribbles to get to the same spot that guys in that era. It took one move, one body, and they're at the spot that they wanted to get to. And so I think that's kind of. You know, they just didn't feel they had to do all of the extras to do what they needed to do. I, I think if you look back at it as well, you would find that um, shooting was better um, as far as percentage wise, that, because there were good shots taken and good shots made. Um, a lot of guys couldn't handle the centers of it. I mean, I watched the video today and just literally had highlights of Shaquille O'Neal and there's nobody in today's game that could do a doggone thing with Shaquille O'Neal at any point in time. So, you know, you know, JJ Reddick missed me with that one, but you know, I digress. Um, and re- I know, mean, there's there's, a, that's the other, there's guy. a lot of guys that couldn't do nothing with Gary Payton right. in those days. You know, I, I can just go back. I mean, I, I remember man. And I really, and I, and I really mean this. I see guys getting the ball now at places dang there at the three point line if I wanted the ball in one place at one spot off the block at the free throw line, wherever I wanted the, the ball, I was going to get it there because you weren't going to, you weren't going to stop me from getting it where I wanted to get it. Um, so some of those fundamentals, yeah, a lot of the skill sets are definitely higher as far as ball handling and just some of the things creatively they can do with the ball. The, even the, even the, the, the sidestep, that was a travel in our day. Right. So, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So the things that they're able to get away with these days and creating space, we had to get space by putting a shoulder on you, a body, um, you know, a, a certain move, a, a counter in order to create the space we needed to, to get it off. Whereas, you know, they, they're, they're given a little bit more extra leeway to, to, to create space than, than we were. Yeah. And uh, off the text line, OG Les Lancaster says, I think back in the day they were better basketball players and today they are better athletes. Do you think that makes that's That's in, in essence, he's saying what I'm saying. Right. Um, and and mm-hmm. I also think that there's uh, it's undervalued how people would, would change or, you know, like athletes of that era, you can say, well, they're bigger, better athletes or whatever, better because they have, you know, better nutrition. There's more, there's more inside. Better on. equipment, so like, yeah. better weight. So training. if, yes, if but- those athletes from back in the sixties had the same, uh, you know, uh, access to that sort of thing, maybe they would be, you know, bigger, better, you know, just the same. And then, like you said, just the rule changes makes it so different and, and people would adjust or will and are adjusting to the modern day game and the different rules that are, that are available to you as, 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 as specifically like defending one on one um in the 90s and hand checking and all that stuff um compared to now so you know i i i understand um yeah i think there's a certain era where you go back far enough yeah they probably weren't the world's best athletes you know playing you know what wasn't at the time one of the biggest games in the world it was kind of you know making its way up but i think for the most part once you kind of get into the um, the Wilt Chamberlain era and, and kind of moving on from then, you know, basketball was probably big enough, though it really didn't blow up uh, nationally as far as the NBA is concerned until the 80s. The 80s yeah, with the uh, with Magic mm-hmm. and Bird there. So and that's had to me, do more TV contracts than anything. Tell me who could have stopped Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in today's game. Rudy Gobert or even had a chance. Rudy Gobert please. thinks he could stop Shaq. That's what I was going to say when you brought that up. <laughs> aye, 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 aye. What? He's a stifled tower. 
Yeah, I don't think so. He would have been the stifled broken tower <laughs> messing with Shaq. Boy, they yeah. had to change rules for him even. Oh, I mean, yeah. Listen, bro. Uh, listen. And, and and Shaq played with the land of giants. That was the, at the time the NBA was all about the big man and nobody could stop him. Rudy Gobert couldn't have handled Patrick Ewing's job. And he definitely couldn't have handled a little Kakeem Olajuwon <laughs> and David Robinson, who is probably the closest thing body type wise to maybe a Gobert yeah. would have still did him dirt ball bad. I mean, uh, listen, come on, bro. Stop it. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to dig into that. We're going to move on to all the right, next right. topic. I don't even want to go into that because uh, I almost, my head almost spinned like the exorcist <laughs> over here uh, thinking about that question. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, um, you know, listen, Deion Sanders brought up something, man, that, that was an interesting point because we actually talked about that on the block when we were talking about our NIL segments for quite a while like what the actual money and the issues and the way that the money has been earned by this new NIL uh, name, image, and likeness rule. Um, the Jackson State football coach, uh, Deion Sanders, uh, basically tagged the NCAA on a tweet where he said, when you start paying athletes like you're professionals, you get athletes acting like they're professionals and they're young athletes that really don't have the understanding of financial uh, uh, acumen to be able to handle those large uh, types of income that's going to just pop into their hands, you know, and some of them don't even have the family in the family background that can yeah. really handle that. So he said, he said, and you don't have staffs, you're limited on staff and you don't have staff large enough or equipped enough to handle the young man with money. And then he said, let me go deeper, handle a young man, that's making more money than some of your coaches on the staff. And that's the point I was trying to make. It, it, it's, it, it'll create a dynamic that is confrontational because at the end of the day, these, these young players can basically say, you know, who are you? You know, who are you to tell me? Uh, I got the money. I, you know, I'm out, you know, those type of things, you're going to have these type of conflicts that, uh, you may not have had before. And so maybe if you have a larger staff or a better way of kind of uh, keeping a handle on that, and uh, that's what he's basically alluding to. He's like, this This NIL is is making it very difficult uh, to be able to compete with the money of Power 5 schools and what they're paying. Yeah, it's never going to be equal for for the lower schools. It never was, and, and it's, it is the current yeah. model before NIL uh, wasn't, as as we've seen in the past. It's generally... You know, five or six schools that run the decade or seven or eight of them, whatever the case may be, you're seeing the same schools make um, the college football play in, playoff year in and year out. And you'd see the same thing in the 2000s, in the 90s. It might be, again, different schools at different times, but it's generally the same seven or eight. Once they get rolling, uh, they can kind of control football for a decade or so or, you know, longer if you're Alabama or, you know, one of those teams that can uh, that has just been doing it for so long. Um, but that you know that aside it is it i mean this is part of the the um the kind of the method that the NCAA took was just to, to not prepare for this thing at all. It, you know, it's, it's, it's been on, on, you know, become coming down. We, we've known for the last couple of years that it's going to be on its way. And it's just like, they just open the floodgates without changing or, you know, putting up, you know, additional help uh, where it's needed. And it's, 
that's 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 why I think this thing is is kind of been to, to some a little bit disastrous, and and they're scared about what the future looks like. They they need to get um, the guardrails up, and th- and that's what they're attempting to do right now. Um, and and part of that might be more coaches, more more uh, allow more people on the coaching staff. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad idea. Now it's not going to be. You know, I I don't know if you open it up to you can have as many as you want. You're gonna have you know. The, the the haves the, you know the Alabamas the Ohio States the the Texases the USC's hire twenty five coaches if they want to but they already a lot of people have those guys in place they're just analysts and they can't quite come on the field and maybe you still kind of have those rules involved there but it wouldn't be equal it, it's not going to be equal but it's not equal now we act like oh no with NIL Alabama's going to get all the top recruits Alabama already gets the top recruits <laughs> and if they don't go there they go to Georgia mm-hmm. or they go you know it's the mm-hmm. same school so um yes the, the money will change and yes that will definitely change the dynamic in the locker room um but I don't know I, I guess uh, for a lot of people the problem is the age there right because that you have that dynamic in professional sports uh, and I think it's a, at a point where the you know NCAA football is, has made enough money that you should probably have that dynamic in in college as well. I mean, when you're when you're in the NBA locker room, I mean, how many assistant coaches made the money that most of the players made? <laughs> that's, I mean, I, I mean, that's the part that that just kind of it blows your mind. I think getting a part, uh, getting a handle on especially the collectives and the recruiting process, I think can help in the mitigation of some of these issues. I think once you're on campus and you're able to evaluate the talent or the level of talent, there's a way to kind of, I think if you equate it earlier in the process in some form or fashion uh, where there's some, uh, like I said, you create like a, um, a, a, a salary cap, you know, they do it in, they do it in pro sports. Why can't you do it there? Right. In, in, in pro football, in, in basketball, you basically have, uh, based on your draft, where you are, you have some form of uh, a capping on that. And I think if you do that in some way or some shape and form where there's some cap on what you have for recruiting money, then you can decide on who's going to get the majority of that and who's not. And that's why I think right now the SEC is at the bottom as far as the NIL situation because – the conference and the prestige of the conference there. I mean, you could just look down the track record from 2014 going up. I mean, the majority of the schools outside of uh, Clemson and, and, and uh, uh, what Clemson, uh, Ohio state yeah. and Oklahoma and, and, and Oklahoma, you know, the majority of the winners have been in the sec. And so they're going to draw that just off the, you know, the, the, the young men that are going to want to be there. And and so Alabama, obviously, they're going to get involved just because, you know, Nick Saban says, I don't like it, but I'm still going to, you know, play by the rules of it. And I'm going to you're going to probably be mad at me at the end of the day because I'm probably still going to win that. (laughs) And then (laughs) and and so so that's where I look at it. And I say, you've got to figure out a way to minimize it on the early onset, because there's tremendously more risk that you're taking in doing a recruiting to get a kid in that has not only shown improved at one level. And there's so many situations that have come up to where players just have not panned out. Right. Um, wherever they are. I mean, you can just look at the situation where um, Spencer Rattler was at Oklahoma and they gave him a tremendous deal of NIL and then he's the backup. So then he leaves. So you basically have missed out on all of that. 
and and didn't even go to the right guy. So I think if they can kind of take care of that situation on the early parts of this, then evaluate the talent. And then I think it'll minimize also players inside internally have an issue with it because you can look on the field and say, oh, I can understand that. But a guy that's coming in and he's getting, yeah. you know, 500,000, a million, 3 million, 8 million. And you're like, wait a second, this and it's probably going to lead you to if he doesn't have a green shirt or a yellow shirt on, you want to take his head off. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, those are the type of things. Maybe I don't block for him. Maybe, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but at the end of the day, it's like you can create these type of situations internally. Like you're not rooting for this guy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? To, to win. So that's what I, I think it, it can also bring bring a problem to an organization or, or a university. Or like we see at the next level, quarterbacks uh, see a young, a young rookie quarterback um, being taken in, in the draft and saying, like Ryan, Ryan Tannehill, I'm not going to mentor that guy. That guy's my competition. What do, you know, I'm not going to help that guy out. So mm. it's kind of interesting just to see. Yeah, th- that uh, I think I think particularly cutting off in it. I mean, recruiting is just so big um, that I don't know if you just let this play out. I mean, like you said, I think it, it, it makes more sense NIL, um, what it was originally kind of created for. The idea behind it is to play, you know, the guys that are playing and not necessarily the guys that, that you're recruiting in. That being said, it, it's difficult. That's the difference between um, going after some of these uh, freshmen that are coming in uh, as opposed to the transfer portal. Like you said, some of these freshmen, everybody he's going to spend all their money and they're going to lose them out. And so hard lesson learned there. And maybe you don't do this so much on the next thing, but the transfer portal, that's not a question of that. I mean, Jordan Addison, you know, that guy can ball. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he might very well be worth whatever, you know, every dime he gets, even if it is up to 3 million mm-hmm. as a college wide receiver. Exactly. And that's, and that's what I'm saying. I think you've got to let them show and prove and, and you can, you can kind of look down at it and say, Oh yeah, that's understandable. it's better than when somebody's coming in and you're like, I mean, just think of probably what they, they, you know, if this was at the height of it, what they gave would have given Quinn yours. And how would freaking, um, you know, CJ Stroud look at that situation. If they would have gave Quinn yours a huge bag and I'm, I'm a, I'm a Heisman trophy candidate and he's not even touching my jock strap. And, and he's got, $3 $3 million in his pocket. And I've only got, you know, a million, you know what I mean? Yeah. And there, I think that's, I think that's crazy. And there is a, a lot of, of, of wondering from the outside of these locker rooms of what that would do inside the locker room. Wet blanket off right. the text line asks, how much do contracts play into relationships between teammates in the NBA? Was there, I mean, was, I mean, do you guys know what each other makes? Um, oh and, yeah. Yeah. And kind of understand. It's yeah. posted. Yeah, yeah. They post your, it, it does it. And listen, don't get it twisted. There's guys that'll act like they're your best friend and they will sell you out. That's why, I mean, it's like there, there are guys that root for you because you're part of the team, but then there's guys that's not rooting for you because you're a starter or you're a six man or yeah. they want your position. So sometimes they'll, they'll root you out. They'll tell your business. They'll say where you were at, you know, so you kind of got to weigh those things out. You can't let you you can't get too close, but you try to be close because you want to have camaraderie. Yeah. But at the end of the day, man, if they if they know you're making the bag and they want the bag, they you know 
they'll they'll undercut you in some ways. How about Duncan Robinson? There's a lot of talk about him in the NBA right now because he signed a ninety million dollar deal, ninety million dollar man, and he's mm-hmm. not even in the rotation for the Heat. For what it, for what is it worth? Again, the Heat, a very deep team, so um, that's kind of part of it. But you kind of think I, I always uh, I know you're a big Mavericks fan. I think one of the worst contracts in history was Chandler Parsons uh, there mm-hmm. for the Mavericks, and uh, you know you just kind of wonder uh, guys like that in the locker room. You almost think it's got to be awkward. It, it, it's very awkward and it's one of those things, man, I'm telling you, it does, it does weigh heavily. Um, I remember one time, I think I might've been for, for a period and think until Michael Finley ended up getting his contract, I was like the third highest paid on the Mavericks team at one mm-hmm. point when they made all the shit behind, like, I think I was behind um, uh, Robert Pack and Sean Bradley and, um, I think I was even probably making a little bit more than AC Green, and but yeah, I was I was at the top tier of that at one point, and so I'm sure guys were looking at me funny style. Yeah, seated <laughs> on both sides then, Strick. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah. um, but listen, on a lighter note, let's 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 do this before we go to break, man, because I think this is a special thing out of Omaha, uh, legendary boxer who we're waiting. We're, we're anticipating hopefully a contract gets done between him and Errol Spence because it has to happen. Uh, but boxing legend out of Omaha, Terrence Crawford, he has a beautiful young daughter by the name of Talia. And she's in a, in, a, in, a, in a track race in the 200. She guts off the starting block, loses her shoe, stops, turns around. I saw the video too. Turns around, just patiently goes and puts her shoe on, works it on finally, takes off, and stunningly, it's going viral, stunningly still wins the 200. (laughs) And not by just barely winning, she still smoked the competition. I think that is phenomenal. And, uh, you know, listen, you know, her her dad is is one of the pound-for-pound greatest number one boxer in the world at his pound, but also pound-for-pound. Uh, arguably one of the best at a 38 no 29 uh, 38 no with a 29 KO record. That was an astonishing feat in the 200 for Young Talia. Yeah, it sure was. I mean, a lot was made of uh, Rich Strike's big comeback there in the Kentucky Derby. I was more impressed with Talia because, I mean, she really had to, uh, to, <laughs> to, 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 I mean, catch up with those, those, the, the, everybody else running. They were way ahead of her. And then just mm. the difference between her speed and theirs. Um, granted, I, I, again, I think part of it might be in the genes. Uh, she might have inherited some of that from her father. So, you know, maybe some of those other gals aren't quite as fast or whatever. But uh, it's an incredible, like, it's, it's, in- incredibly impressive because you have to remember those other gals are trying to they're they're also you know pretty somewhat athletic they're they're on the running team they've been chosen selected to be in that spot and uh and just to see the difference between her speed and them i mean you wonder what the the how how many seconds she would finish above them without the shoe problem yeah and 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 what what even makes it even it just shows the calmness it it, is it is it translation is i mean is it is it passed down to the to the kids because she was just so poised i mean some people would have panicked and freaked out and you know lost it but she was poised got it together and just kind of strided it out and just kept it going and didn't quit didn't give up i mean some kids would have given up started crying and bent down and just stopped but she just kept it kept poised and pushed it out man i thought that was beautiful so 
you know, shout out to Talia and, and Bud Crawford and and, and just a, a wonderful daughter as we get ready to go to break here on 93.7 The Ticket. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with Hitting the Hardwood, talk a little bit about some, some uh, locker room issues that are popping off and also find out who took advantage of uh, the home court. We'll be right back after this on The Block on 93.7 The Ticket. 